Hi, I'm Jeff Miller. I'm Anthony Navarro, and welcome to Talk Out Loud, where we share the LGBTQIA narrative one story at a time. On this episode of Talk Out Loud, we're here with Rodney Wilson. Rodney is an author, teacher, and the founder of LGBT History Month. Growing up in a small town in Missouri, the message he and others heard was that gays and lesbians were damaged goods and so dangerous that they should not be allowed in the classroom. But Rodney's thirst for knowledge and calling was louder, leading him to obtain multiple degrees in education and becoming a teacher. Then, a few years later, on a continuing education trip to Washington, D.C., he came across some history that changed his life forever. This led him to coming out to his students during a history lesson that forever changed the world. Let's hear Rodney's story. Today we're joined by author, teacher, founder of LGBT History Month, and HuffPost advocate, contributing writer, Rodney Wilson. Rodney, you are here with us for our first virtual podcast with Talk Out Loud, and we could not thank you enough for joining us today. Thank you. It is my pleasure to be with both of you. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here today, Rodney. Thanks for wanting to be on the show. So Rodney, Anthony and I both first wanted to thank you for all the advocacy work you've done. But first, we'd really like to to get to know you a little bit better and for all our listeners to get to know you better. And I can't think of a better place than to start with your childhood and, and where you grew up and what shaped you and molded you into the, uh, the person and advocate that you are today. Where are you from? I was uh, born in Southern Missouri, uh, about an hour and a half south of St. Louis in the mid-1960s. My mother and father were young parents. My mother was 18. My father was 20. Uh, Both had stopped their formal education uh, prior to graduating from high school. My father never returned to education, but my mother did later go back and, and earned her GED and also an associate's degree at a community college. I'm at the northern end, where I was born is at the northern end of of the Ozark Range that goes through southern Missouri and then into northern Arkansas. And we were a uh, a poor, rural, white family. Uh, We lived in a very small home of about 650 square feet, uh, one bathroom, one tiny closet. We never needed necessities like food or clothing, but uh, we certainly did not have any luxuries of any kind. And primarily, I gained access to the world beyond my little town via television. Uh, we had five channels that we received uh, over the air from St. Louis, the CBS, NBC, ABC, PBS affiliate, and then an independent station. So we had an antenna on top of the house, and I'd go up there and turn it around, and Dad would yell out the window whether the picture was better or not. Uh, I remember when we got color television. That was very exciting. Uh, I remember when we got a telephone in 1976 when I was 11 years old. That was very exciting. I followed the telephone man uh, all around until he finally brought the phone into the house. And then my sister and I had to flip a coin to see who got to make the first phone call. So we were a family that was struggling uh, economically. My father had some uh, mental health issues uh, that at that time were not well defined or well diagnosed. He had anxiety and 
depression and some phobias. But uh, at the time, the, the diagnosis for these and the medical treatment uh, for these sorts of ailments were quite primitive. So my dad had various struggles. And of course, that uh, trickled down to the entire family. He, he was a good, kind, loving, decent man. But these um, mental health issues did cause um, certain moments of anxiety and, and consternation for me particularly, but I think for the family generally. My mother was a very, was and is a very strong woman. She's independent, uh, very smart. She loved to read. I can still remember sitting in uh, bed with her at night as she's reading Gone with the Wind or some other romance novel generally, and I could watch her eyes, how quickly they darted across the page, and it just seemed amazing to me. And she made certain that I had Dr. Seuss books, and uh, she made certain that when Funk and Wagnalls finally came around to our small little town and offered one volume of their encyclopedia every week at the local IGA, that we got that one volume until we had the complete set. I can remember going through page by page by page every time we'd get that book, and it was just mm. amazing. So that's where I was raised in that small town of 2,500 people in Washington County, a county of about 25,000 people, very much in rural Missouri. Spent my entire life there. I went through K through 12 in that school district, graduated in 1983 from that school and then decided actually that I wasn't going to do uh, any more education in part because I was a fundamentalist Christian at the time and I really did believe that the uh, end of the world was imminent and I had more important things to do than seek more education. So I took a job at a Walmart store uh, and worked there for two and a half years until I decided it, it wasn't the right place for me. And at that point, I went back to a community college near my home, uh, the one I'm currently working at, actually, and finished my two-year degree there and, and moved on to a, a state university, finished my four-year teaching degree, began teaching in 1990 at a suburban St. Louis high school. So that brings me up to about, I guess, 1990. When you had those five stations, and also with the encyclopedia being brought into your home, was there a thirst like your mother had for information and, and knowledge and stuff like that? And if so, what, what did you find yourself uh, being drawn to? I was curious about everything, and I asked questions about everything. Uh, that's, those are stories my mother reminds me of. I think, yes, I always wanted to know what was going on in the world outside of mine. And in my high school, the local Rotary Club had a foreign exchange student program going, and my junior year in high school, they brought in a, an exchange student from Japan. And my senior year of high school, they brought in an exchange student from Denmark. And, and I, I went to them like a magnet because I wanted to know about people who lived outside the United States. I wanted to know about people who had seen and grown up in a different part of the world. So I was always seeking out people who were not like I was. Uh, people who were not raised in rural uh, United States. And reading, of course, was my favorite pastime. I, I read all the time, anything I could get my hands on. I still remember my first trip to the public library and getting a library card and how proud I was to have that. So through reading and through television, I think those were the two avenues because my family didn't travel. We 
uh, we didn't take vacations. I, I thought rich people owned luggage and rich people took vacations and rich people had telephones and all sorts of thoughts like that. So we didn't travel. Uh, so I learned about the world through PBS, uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Uh, we'd watch 60 Minutes on CBS on Sunday nights, CBS Sunday morning on Sunday mornings. So that's how I began to learn about the world. And then when I went away to college, I also gravitated toward everyone who was different, everyone who came from a different locale. I had Japanese roommates uh, throughout my undergraduate years as an intentional choice because I wanted to learn about uh, their world and their lives and their languages and religions and cultures. I'm curious, how was, as far as like culturally in your home, what was, was there any language uh, used for people that were different or was there any thought about, you know, any talk about, you know, queer culture or anything like that for your family growing up? Well, my father used the word queer in a derogatory fashion, of course, uh, at that time. And interestingly, in 1969, when my father uh, spent a couple of weeks in a psychiatric hospital, a Barnes Hospital in St. Louis, which is one of the great hospitals, at the same time, Tennessee Williams, you know, the great yeah. Uh, writer was there on the same hall as my father. <clears throat> and my father would tell stories about every time when he had walked past the room that Tennessee Williams was staying in. He, he could hear him in there on his typewriter, just typing away all day long, typing away. And then my dad would throw out, of course, we knew he was queer. Mm. My dad had someone on his softball team who was the pitcher, a really good pitcher, I remember. And my dad warned me to stay away from him because dad thought there was something a little queer about him. So my dad was very much a man of his generation. He was born in 1944, you know, one year prior to the end of World War II. So he was a man of his generation. So we did not know uh, gay people. And even as I think about it now, 1970s television, for example, uh, Soap, which was that comedic take on daytime soap operas that aired in the evening and Billy Crystal played uh, a gay person on that program. You know, I remember looking at him with both intrigue and also with anxiety because I was sitting in my living room with my mother and father and my sister watching a gay character being portrayed on television and wondering and being intrigued by him and by his life. And then there were people on television at the time, like Paul Lind, for example, the Center Square and Hollywood Squares, Uncle Arthur on, the, on Bewitched. And truly, it didn't dawn on my mind that he was gay. I don't think it even dawned on my mind that Liberace was gay, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. Because in the 1970s in rural America, uh, you didn't expect that people were really gay. Certainly not people you allowed into your living room, either literally or via television. Yeah, it's interesting you talked about that intrigue and also like that nervousness. Uh, I told, I've never heard anyone quite put it that way. And I remember in the 80s on PBS watching, um, I don't know if you ever saw that, uh, the sitcom from the BBC, Are You Being Served? Yes. And uh, when Mr. Jeffries would come out and I was just like, that, 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 I guess what, even just now saying that I get like a little bit of a sweaty palm still to this day. It's so funny. <laughs> what, I, what I'm curious though is, is then thanks for sharing about, about your family life because I think that's important just to acknowledge like 
that that does, there's an awareness inside of us. Like we're observing, like how do we, how people that talk and act like that, how we view them in our family or culturally, like that's kind of taught to be passed on to one another, you know? And I think, you know, I love how you talked about how your father was born in 1944 and acknowledging the world that he grew up in was not the world that we live in today, nor was the world that you and I grew up in as well, the world we live in today. And almost a desire to want to protect your children from, from, from somebody who was like that, which today I think we know, we know better than that. But, um, you know, it's not contagious. It's nothing like, like, like that. We're not going to, we're not, we're not looking to spread anything here. It's just something that who, who I am. Um, knowing that, so, so we, we, Anthony and I, we, we, we know that you, you teach history. And you talked about, you know, you, went, you ended up then after being at Walmart, going uh, then to community college and continuing on in your education. Did you, did you have something inside of you, like story or, or desire to want to pursue history that kind of lit you up? Yeah, absolutely. I first became interested in history when I started to research family history. And I think all of this was a desire to ground myself. I, I think I felt unanchored in life, and I needed somehow to find some grounding, some platform from which I could build my life. And for me, the, the logical means of finding that platform was to look back at that which brought me to the present, to the location I found myself in. So I really started my interest in American history specifically by looking at my family history, which I knew nothing about. We, we didn't keep our family history well, but I found so many interesting characters and people who died in the Civil War and all sorts of people that I didn't know about who had lived long before I came to be. And then I needed to place them in the larger American history. So I started naturally when I learned that a great-great-grandfather had died in the Civil War in 1862. Uh, thankfully, a Union soldier. I then wanted to understand more about the Civil War and about that time period. So I moved on into the study of the larger picture of American history. I think I also, part of the reason fundamentalist Christianity was so attractive to me is one, I was born with a religious orientation, but two, I was also trying to find some uh, stability and some grounding and some truth and some reality. Uh, that would give me a place from which I could jump off to go out into the larger world. So American history, family history, religion, religious history, those were the areas in which I sought to find a whole way of confronting who I was ultimately. And then when I started to come out as a gay person, which didn't happen until college, I immediately went to LGBTQ history because mm -hmm. I knew that these other types of history I'd studied gave me a sense of self and place. And so I looked then for gay history to also give me a sense of self and place as I struggled with that coming out process. Rodney, when it's interesting when you were you were saying that you were building this foundation for your life. I remember, you know, for myself after I came out that my this sort of idea of what my life, what my future was going to look like, it altered, it changed. Uh, before I came out, you know, I felt that I was going to, you know, uh, go to college, meet a, you know, a woman, get married, have kids, have a job, that whole thing. That was sort of this story that I told myself. When you 
started discovering, especially like researching um, LGBTQ history, how did that start shifting that? Like, how did that facilitate that change in your perception of what your life was going to look like? Well, I know that getting back a little bit to the 1970s in television, I know that when Anita Bryant came into our homes in 1977 with that Dade County uh, vote that was so Mm -hmm. devastating, I was aware of that. Mm. That was hurtful. That harmed me. I think that harmed every LGBT person in this country. Mm -hmm. And and then the next year, the Briggs Initiative in California, in which the people of California were quite literally voting about whether or not a then gay and lesbian person could be a teacher. These were harmful to me. Mm. So when I started looking at LGBTQ history, I wanted to look far above and beyond those experiences from the 1970s that were harmful. And then I went back and I discovered, you know, the Mattachine Society of 1950, the Mm -hmm. Daughters of Belitis later Mm in the 1950s, Stonewall in 1969, Harvey Milk, Mm -hmm. 1978, his assassination. All of these began to place me. Bayard Rustin, who organized the March on Washington in 1963, where Martin Luther King delivered that beautiful I Have a Dream speech, all of these wonderful people who were behind the scenes, in the shadows, present but not really present. The light wasn't able to come upon them because they had this difference. They had to be, in the case of Bayard Rustin, a brother outsider, someone who wasn't really fully in the group as who he was. So all of that gave me power. I didn't know there was uh, an LGBTQ history. I didn't know that there were people like me mm-hmm. through all time, going all the way back. There have always been people who who were like I am. Yeah. And absolutely, that created a community, not only with the past, not only with the dead, but a community with those who were also still right now alive with me and struggling with me through many of the same circumstances from 10, 30, 50, 100 years ago. Mm. You know, that's, it's interesting. I know, you know, during my coming out process, being able to connect with LGBTQ history was, it was really important for me to understand that not only was I not alone, but that people who are like me, my community, they did span, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And it was, I know, I know for myself, taking those LGBTQ history classes in college, it was, it was really important. And I think it was also just being able to have those conversations intellectually with a professor and with your class. I know that really, that really helped. My, my next thought is, so if you're, you're researching, uh, you're in college, when did you discover that you wanted to be a teacher? I think I discovered that because I loved being a learner, Mm. and a learner loves to teach what they've learned. So probably halfway through that experience at Walmart, I decided that's not what I want to do. I, I love to learn too much, and I'm capable of learning. I was always a really good student in high school, and I decided if I'm going to do something I want to do something, one, that's fulfilling for me, learning and teaching, and two, that helps contribute to the world. And the point you raised there a second ago, too, about 
understanding through the lens of history that we are part of a stream that's been flowing for a long time. The same thing happened if you consider Black American history. Mm -hmm. Think of Dr. Carter G. Woodson, the second African American to have a PhD at Harvard, the man who founded then called Negro History Week in 1926. He talked about, quote, the great theater of events in which black people, black Americans had found themselves and how that theater of events and their contributions and their lives had been overlooked, considered unimportant, not relevant, not worthy of the academy. So he is the father of black history, is the creator of of what became Black and African American History Month. He was trying to do that for his community to give them a grounding, to give them a purpose, to give them people in the historical record and in the great flow of history, and thereby empowering their community, empowering and helping them identify with others who had gone through very similar struggles. I think the same is true of women's history, Mm -hmm. Native American history, Mm. lesbian and gay history. Yeah, it also you know as you were sort of you know just talking through that it it also makes me think of like just even within my own family i know uh jeff could probably attest to this getting to know my family more and more but how important it was it is for uh the the older folks within my family to sort of pass down the traditions and pass down these um you know, stories of, you know, grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. I think there's, when you know where you come from, it helps, you know, shape where you're going. Shouldn't hold you back or or uh, stop you from doing anything. But I think it's, you know, it's definitely important uh, to always be able to to look backwards to give you that grounding so that you can move forward and blossom. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's why from the beginning of my teaching career uh, 30 years ago, I felt it was extremely important to help my students understand uh, how vital the past was. And it's very difficult to do with young people. There's almost actually not uh, a developmental process that's occurred yet for a young person to understand that the world didn't begin to exist the day they were born, that the world has been here for a long, long time. And a lot of people have lived on this planet and they've, they've loved and they've bled and they've had hopes and they've had dreams and, and tragedies and they've rejoiced and they've suffered and that they are now just born into this stream at this time and this place. And eventually they'll be washed away and a whole new group will come. Most people begin to really like history as they get older, as they age. Mm -hmm. So it's hard as a teacher to make it relevant and make it interesting and make it something that's pertinent to them. But I agree with you, there is power in history. And when we understand where we came from and why things are the way they are today, I think it is empowering. And it's also an act of political courage. Mm -hmm. It was for Carter Woodson an act of political courage and for women and for LGBTQ people. It's an act of political courage to say we also have a story We didn't just suddenly appear in 1969 at Stonewall. We were here for a long time before that. Yeah, It's it's interesting. You mentioned Anita Bryant earlier. 
I'd heard her name a little bit growing up, but I didn't realize the full history of the actual movement was called Save Our Children, which probably did more harm to, to, to LGBTQI children than anyone was ever aware of it, you know, at this time in the 70s. But at the same time, and you know, the history of that was is that people in, in Southern Florida, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, you know, chose to, to to speak up for those rights for the gay and lesbian community in South Florida, which then created a ripple effect throughout the rest of the country in that in that era that challenged policies and and, and things like that. And the, at that point was really when the embeddedment of the evangelical evangelical church with Jerry Falwell, is my understanding, kind of t- took hostage of this this issue that has been going on for the last 30, 40, 50 years. It's interesting to me just to see like how one action, one person's voice can 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 cause a ripple effect in any situation and to be aware of like you know, how I speak to people every day, like what I'm choosing, how I'm choosing to live my life, how that affects other people's lives. I'm curious to know, like for you, like you're, you've been really close to your mom through, throughout the years. And at, at what point was it in college that you, you came out to your parents? I started coming out in 1989 when I was 24 and I was at the State University in Cape Girardeau on the Mississippi River, the hometown of Rush Limbaugh, a very conservative place, because there was on campus a GLSA, it was called Gay and Lesbian Student Association. It had mm. been around for about two or three years prior to 1989, and they had an advertisement in the school newspaper with a P.O. box. So I, I wrote a letter to that P.O. box number 31, I still remember. Mm-hmm. And I said, I really need to talk to somebody. I, I, I need help with this issue. And they got the letter. They set me up with the um, faculty sponsor and I met him. And then I started to meet other people. So that was in 1989. I, I didn't tell my mom the story until uh, 1991. So a couple of years later, and I was already teaching then. I was living in St. Louis. I called her on the telephone. And I remember I said, Mom, I, I want you to be always involved in my life. And I want you to always know what's going on. So I have to tell you I'm gay. And her first sentence back to me was, son I've known for years because my mother's perceptive and she's smart and she knows me and she and I think so much alike. So she had known for years, but that was the confirmation. Uh, It took her, you know, 12 hours of a little bit of crying, a little bit of concern. Uh, You have to keep in mind, of course, the first AIDS case was diagnosed in 1981. Uh, One of my childhood friends who was about four years or three years older than I was, who used to look after me when I was out in the yard playing. He had passed away from HIV AIDS in October of 1987. So my mom is afraid about what people might do to me. She's afraid about uh, health risk. She's afraid about living in a society that's not friendly to LGBTQ people. But she became and remains to this day, you know, my staunchest defender and supporter. Hmm. My dad took a little more time to get accustomed to the idea. In fact, when he informed my sister, he couldn't say the word gay. He spelled it to her. Hmm. Your Rodney is G-A-Y. But he came around also because he was a good man and he loved me. And sadly, sometimes actually parents don't love their children in the way that allows them to accept their children for who their children are. 
fortunately for me, my parents loved me in that way. And you're absolutely right in regard to uh, Anita Bryant to touch, unfortunately, on her for another second, because I wrote a paper about uh, Carol Curitan, who was a pastor at the MCC Church in St. Louis. She founded that church, actually, in 1973. Incredible woman. I wrote it when I was doing my graduate work uh, graduate work in history. The night of the unfortunate and unhappy vote in Dade County, I believe it was November 1977, there was a meeting, a community meeting at the church for lesbian and gay St. Louisans. And fortunately, somebody audio taped that meeting, and I've listened to it. And there's no doubt that what happened there galvanized the the LGBTQ community all across the country. And it was a wellspring of new activism and new activists because we had been threatened, very seriously threatened, save our children. That's a very scary campaign. Mm-hmm. Gay people should not be teachers. It's a very scary campaign. And she did um, help galvanize the movement, codify the fact that we were a community under attack. And you mentioned Jerry Falwell, of course, 1979, he founded the Moral Majority, which flirted with and then got in bed with uh, the Republican Party and remains there to this day. Also in the 1970s, we were fighting the Equal Rights Amendment, a Mm. very simple, few words, 20 words or so we wanted to add to the Constitution to make it explicitly and forever clear that women in America are equal to men under the law. We couldn't get that included, and it's still not included in the Constitution. But you had the uh, aftermath of Roe versus Wade. You had Dade County in 77. You had Jerry Falwell, a moral majority in 79. So all of that baggage was carried by all of us in this community into the 1980s. And then the first AIDS diagnosis in 1981. So it was a very rough time. Thanks for speaking to that and specifically the history of it, Rodney, because, you know, I know a lot of this, I didn't fully quite understand the depth and weight of really what took place at this time. So you took a trip to D.C. Um, to the, is it, was it the Holocaust Museum? Was that? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. And can you talk about like what that experience was and, and, and was there like a light bulb or an aha moment that took place during that trip? Yes, I was very fortunate that my school district had a very strong local union that was affiliated with the Missouri National Education Association and the National Education Association, and also very lucky that the NEA has been on the forefront of, of human rights uh, movements and progressive advancements uh, for many, many decades. And they began in the 1990s to sponsor various groups for educators to come to Washington, D.C. and to talk about issues that were confronting uh, LGBTQ uh, kids in K-12 schools and also LGBTQ teachers. So I went to a couple of these conferences. They were empowering, of course. I was not yet out at my high school, certainly not to any student, and only to the other gay and lesbian teachers who were on the campus, but they were not out. They were older than I was. I was the youngest one at the time. And I did go to the uh, National Holocaust Memorial Museum, which had only recently opened, and it was, of course, meaningful, deeply meaningful. And while I was there, I 
purchased a poster that had some of the various patches that various criminal ones under the Nazi regime were forced to wear, like Jehovah's Witnesses and the Purple Triangle, of course, the the Star of David for uh, Jews, and the Pink Triangle for homosexuals, and, and many other. They, they imprisoned all sorts of, of individuals, although it was primarily uh, of course, the target of their hatred was the Jewish people. And I brought that poster back with me to my high school because I wanted my students to see it. I wanted them to be aware. Uh, it was in the spring, so we had rolled around to World War II in the aftermath uh, in this junior American history course. And it was at that point, yes, that I decided uh, I can't be in the closet anymore on the job. I can't stand up in front of students and not be authentically who I am because that makes me a less efficient and less wise teacher. And so I used uh, that lesson that we were uh, already uh, learning in that class as a way to say, and, and to make it real, they call it a teachable moment, to say, you know, if I had been there at the time, perhaps under paragraph 175 of the German Penal Code, I might have been arrested. I might have been put in a prison camp or a prison and had to wear a pink triangle. So that was the way in which I let my students know that I was a, a gay man who had been teaching in that school at that point. Yeah. It was my fourth year. Yeah, you said, you know, you said teachable moment. And to me, it's almost, I, I hear that and I totally resonate. And then, but also I'm feeling is, is that you had a human moment with your students. Mm. You know, sometimes when we read about these things in the book, you know, these, these book, history books or these, these stories, you know, we, we hear about people like, you know, getting their heads cut off, you know, like, back, you know, you know, let them eat cake like that, you know, and, it, and we joke around about it, but uh, just like how malicious and, you know, and we, obviously the, not obviously, but to, to, to pay note that the Holocaust was a horrible tragedy and that, the, you know, there are still people today that want to say that it didn't exist. I and mean, we know that we're doomed to repeat ourselves if, if you know, if that, if that happens. You know, I, I remember when I saw La Caja Falls for the first time, and I didn't, it was really my first education on what took place as well um, with the pink triangles during the concentration camps. But then, you know, we, with you being there in front of your students, making it real and personable and human, yeah, giving a face to that, and they had already had time with you. This was, I believe, I remember reading, this was like in, was this in January? Uh, this was in March, March twenty second, nineteen ninety four. Okay, so they had already had that previous school year to develop a relationship with you leading up to this moment, mm -hmm. right? That's correct. And what was in this was high school. So what what age were these were these kids? These students would have been sixteen or seventeen. It was um, a junior American history class, and you're right; they had been with me since uh, at least around Labor Day. I had been in that school for three full school years prior to that year. I had a good rapport with students. I had good working relationship with my colleagues in the administration. I, I cared about my students. I, I really felt it was a, a calling to stand in front of them and give them information that they didn't know about and to help shape them and mold them and make them good citizens and good people. And I think they knew that I cared about them and that I was a, a good and decent person. And now I had simply revealed another facet of my personality and of my reality to them. Ronnie, do you think looking back upon you telling your students or you know showing them who you are, 
Were you afraid? Was there any fear in making that statement to them? There must have been some, but I don't recall that there was a large amount of fear about it because it had come to the point that it simply had to be done. Mm. Uh, 1994, that October, was going to be the first annual, then we called it Lesbian and Gay History Month. Uh, I had sent out the proposal about establishing October as History Month in January, and I knew that there would be some attention about this event because we were beginning to get endorsements from all the various uh, national lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans organizations at the time and educational groups. So I felt it was really important that I control the story, Mm. that it not control me. Also, I felt it was the responsible act of a teacher to not allow a rumor mill Mm. of innuendo and secondhand stories to filter down to my students and give them discomfort and to make them wonder and to make them feel I wasn't being authentic with them. Mm. So I really felt it was the it, it was the correct act of a teacher pedagogically and also I think anytime we say who we are it's it's a righteous act it's a righteous deed. So my students Gratefully, overwhelmingly, not um, everyone, but overwhelmingly, students were very receptive and very kind. And the school year, frankly, continued largely as it had through the rest of 1994. And then over summer of 94, things began to bubble and there were some school board meetings that were problematic. But largely, I was able to walk through it without fear or anxiety I think actually in some ways when I look back on some of the news accounts of that day, which I hadn't done for about 25 years until two summers ago, I think it gives me more anxiety now Mm. to review that period than it gave me at that time. And that could just be in some sense a function of age. It's Mm. easier to get anxious when you're 55 than when you're 29. Yeah, I also think about sort of when I was younger and when I would when I felt compelled to come out to people uh, or tell them that I was gay, there's there was almost that sort of anxious kind of feeling inside before that happened. But it but like you said, that time I felt that I had to do that because I needed to be seen as who I was. I wanted people to know that, yes, I am, uh, you know, I'm Anthony, I'm a person, but I'm also gay. And you need to know that mm-hmm. that there's a gay person that you're interacting with. I, I can remember, you know, being anxious about that. This We're also talking about back, you know, in the 90s, it was not is, you know, it just was not as well talked about yet. I mean, I I feel like even just thinking about media on television, who were our role models? I'm pretty sure that in 94, I mean, uh, Ellen uh, DeGeneres didn't, you know, she had a sitcom back then. She hadn't come out on the show yet. So I, I feel like that whole snowball of, you know, media representation of being able to see queer characters on TV, that really didn't start till the end of the 90s. So it's, there's a lot of importance in being able to have people 
see you for who you truly are. I also think that there has to be there has to be something said uh, about what you said about your rapport with your students. I feel like listening over the last you know couple of weeks to a couple of different podcasts. One of them is on uh, was on the Khan Institute, the founder of the Khan Institute. They do educational videos, and what they have found is that there's the same teachers have to do the educational or instructional videos because the students create a rapport with a teacher. So I mm-hmm. I totally hear you when if you were not directing the narrative, there would have been a lack of trust and probably that would have probably hurt the students more, it sounds like, than having them hear that you're a gay man. Additionally, of course, there were LGBTQ students and oh, what a yeah. disservice to them. For sure. If I continued to keep this secret and I allowed it to come out through the rumor mill as something nasty and bad and dirty. So I had an obligation to those students as much as I had an obligation to my straight students to make certain they understood. And you mentioned coming out, and you're right. When we don't, and each person must come out when it's right for them, and we're all on our own journey, and we're all at a different place, mm-hmm. but we can get stuck in our emotional, you know, psycho-emotional, psychosexual development. We can get stuck if we come to that door, the closet door, we mm-hmm. could say, and if we don't open it, we remain stuck and inhibited and and our potential for growth is is so much diminished, not only growth with that relationship or that friendship or with our families, but our own innate mm-hmm. growth. So it, it's vital. And the good news is things are so much better today. It, it does get better. Yep. And I see these young people, they absolutely astound me and amaze me how open they are. Now, they're still suffering. Yep. There are still families that are not accepting. There are still homeless LGBTQ young people who were removed from their homes. We still have a lot of work to do, but we have made great strides. Just for everyone who's listening, um, after this uh, happened, after Rodney came out to uh, his class, there there was a little bit of a, a media frenzy you want to use that word, um, there was definitely a lot of attention or eyes sort of on you being a gay teacher and also, uh, you know, coming out to the, to your class at that time. Did you, did you ever have the foresight to see that it was going to like the, the situation that happened in your classroom, you coming out to your students, did it ever dawn on you that it would make national news? It did not. I didn't think that far ahead, Mm. but I did come though fairly quickly to recognize that my job would be saved because at that point, the fourth year, um, I wasn't tenured yet. That would happen at the end of the fifth year, which gives you a a lot more uh, stability in terms of job and job rights. So I did though come very quickly to recognize I needed the union behind me, the local and the state and the National Education Association, and they were behind me. The Missouri NEA provided an attorney 
for me. Mm-hmm. I also knew that it was a very good thing that I had an impeccable record. In fact, I remember the first year I taught my vice principal over the social studies department wanted to nominate me as the new teacher of the year for the district. And I said, I just don't have time for that. But my record was impeccable. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd always done what I was supposed to do. And then thirdly, I was aware that having a spotlight on the situation helps because people will do awful things more likely if they think no one will notice. Mm. So when I was first contacted by Jeanette Batts, who's a wonderful writer, then with the Riverfront Times, which was an alternative and is an alternative newspaper in St. Louis. And I don't know how she learned about the story. And she and I recently reminisced trying to figure that out. and We can't recall. But (laughs) when she contacted me, I a little bit reluctantly at first, but not for very long because I recognized this is how they'll know Mm. that what they end up doing to me will get attention. Mm. So the attorney, my record, and having the free press uh, nosing around in the situation, I think were all three vital uh, elements of what helped me maintain my job the next year to be granted tenure. And then I stayed two additional years after that as well. Hmm. I hear it time and time again, uh, especially on this show and just in life in general, but I heard what you just said in terms of being heard, being seen. And when you're in a marginalized group, it's just always important to not be afraid of who you are, to stand up for yourself and to be able to be seen. Because when you do that, that's how you inspire other people who are out there watching or listening. I just think it's uh, commending you that you had that foresight to be able to see that that's the, the importance of doing that. It wasn't about fame and fortune or you know celebrity, you know having your five minutes of fame or anything like that. It was really to be able to you know to talk to the press to, so that you your voice could be heard and that you were able to you know direct the narrative. Yeah, I like the way you put that. It it does help with directing the narrative instead of having the narrative direct you. To, to me, it's interesting to know that there was a network that was behind you that was not just behind you when you were coming out, but you were with with forming um, you know LGBT History Month. Did you ever feel? Did you feel at that point, or looking back upon it, like it almost kind of like like when a surgeon's in the middle of surgery and they ask for the scalpel or they ask for this, like the person's there to give them the tool that they need for the next action. Can you look back on life and, and kind of see like any instance in that where like things kind of fell into place for the for like your mission, for lack of better? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Certainly 1994 was an eventful and exhausting year because it did culminate around the, the founding of History Month uh, with, I'm, I, I never want to neglect saying with uh, helpers like John Du Bois and Kevin Booyer and Kevin Jennings and Jessia Greenman and Tori Wilson, the people that came with me to form that first coordinating committee, Gerber Hart Library, Glisten, the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Teachers Network. It was then called now Education Network. You know, these people, I, I sent out the the proposal and, and they came on board and we formed a committee and we just started doing our job without an internet I didn't even have an email address uh, Mm. in 1994 till late in the year. Um, And then the coming out happened in in May. So 
or in March. So yeah, 1994 was an odd and unusual year. That October was the first annual LGBTQ History Month. I'm teaching full-time. I'm working on a graduate degree in history. The, the Dateline NBC episode aired on October the 4th. Teacher Magazine came out at the same time. And now I look back and I don't understand how I had the energy and the stamina actually to get through 1994. But mm. again, at 29, you can do a lot of things. True. <laughs> and, and just to, like you said, Dateline NBC, I just kind of got flashbacks. Like to, to anybody who's not familiar, Dateline NBC was, and I honestly don't think there's quite a, a media maybe 60 minutes today would be the closest thing I can think of. Um, but we didn't, you know, we, there wasn't as many, you know, there wasn't streaming, there wasn't Netflix, there was, you know, we had cable then, but still for like your spotlight for the week of what was happening in, in the United States or the world, like that was where everyone turned into Jane Polly, you know, and uh, she's from Indiana where I'm from. And, and, and it was, that was where, I mean, and so to have you or like, that's a big deal to be on that show and people can go back still today and you can obviously you can you can watch that that the, the segment that, that aired your story so i'm curious like and i and i you know i've talked about this rodney is like i i've watched that video of you where you're you're speaking and i don't know if you're answering who and what you were answering to exactly um whether it was a press or or um a school board or but there's footage of you and you are sitting there very at peace you know i, I like to use the word you're, you're neither cocky nor afraid in those moments that i watch you speak on dateline nbc was there something else besides these people? Where did you draw your strength from? Uh, and, and if you don't know, that's it's a fair answer as well, too. I, I, I appreciate the, the phrase you use because I, I don't want to be a cocky person and I don't want to be a person who's fearful. So I appreciate the phrase and it, it is a very meaningful way to put it. I, th I think I got strength from one... I have my mother's personality of perseverance and that you just keep pushing through and, and you get through what you have to get through. Mm. Uh, the largest uh, influence on my life philosophy was Martin Luther King. And I had studied his life uh, quite intimately and read everything uh, he had ever written, listened to every speech I could find. And uh, he was a great inspiration. I was of course, uh, quite religious at the time. And even to this day, I think, uh, you know, 90% of everything Jesus said is pretty cool and would transform the world, even if you dismiss from it all of the supernatural aspects, the way Thomas Jefferson did with the Jefferson Bible, when he cut out all the miraculous parts and kept the morals and the teachings of Jesus. So I think probably that would be where I got that energy. And I think, too, when a person is walking in truth, to the best of their ability to discern the truth, that's empowering because mm -hmm. you believe you're on the right side of the narrative and that the story is ultimately coming in your direction. And, you know, Martin Luther King used to talk about the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And when you're walking in what you believe is truth, uh, you believe that the arc of justice is going to eventually bend in your direction. Mm. Wow, that's really helpful. Thanks for you know that just reminds me like because you know I've seen that people that have have come up through history that have done amazing things, but to really model after the peace and the love and the message that came the, and unwavering with Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. and 
the little bit of, of education I had on him in school, you know, we talk about the March on Washington and, and I didn't realize up until even recently that, you know, how many years, was, was it like 13 years that he did his work? It wasn't just, you know, it didn't just happen all at once. It was building up over that 13 year period. Is that, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that sound about right? That's right. The Montgomery bus boycott began in December of 1955. He was a new preacher in town, and they recruited him to uh, head up the Montgomery Improvement Association. So in 1956, he came fully into the consciousness of America, and he was assassinated in April of 1968. So it was a 13-year period in which the country turned its eyes to Martin Luther King. And he's so much more than the I Have a Dream speech, as wonderful and inspiring as it is. I mean, I would ask everybody, go to YouTube and type in, you know, Martin Luther King and Vietnam War speech, which he gave on, I believe, April 4th of 67, precisely one year to the day before he was assassinated. I mean, there's not a more magnificent piece of oratory that we have on audio tape probably than Martin Luther King explaining why he opposed the Vietnam War. And of course, that put him at odds with a lot of um, mainstream and moderate uh, white people who had come around on civil rights, but he began to talk about war and he began to talk about poverty. And so he was challenging the economic might of the country, and he was challenging the military might of the country and expressing how all of the expenditures on the Vietnam War, which was probably America's biggest foreign policy debacle ever, how that was taking away from President Johnson's war on poverty and great society. So yeah, Martin Luther King, I mean, he died at age 39, so he lived such a short life, yet he was able to see a beloved community that did not yet exist. And he, as long as he had breath, he brought people toward that community. And mm -hmm. we can find the same in, in people in the women's movement, Native American movement, LGBTQ movement, people who, um, Harvey Milk comes to mind, mm -hmm. people who can see the world as it should be and as it will be, and they can begin to take steps and help others come along with them to take steps toward that future to hasten its arrival. Mm. Well said. It brought me back to this image. I'm from South Bend, Indiana. Reverend Theodore Hesper was the president of the University of Notre Dame for, for, for a good while. He passed away a couple of years ago. There's an image that comes to my mind of, of, of Father Ted with Martin Luther King locked arms in arms during um, a protest, a civil rights protest in the 1960s. And just to kind of bring it current, this week that the Pope came out in favor of civil unions. And I was very surprised to see that. That is a small yet huge step for the Universal Catholic Church, and it was, uh, you know, Pope Francis I surprises us often. Occasionally, we don't like what he says, but often we do. He, he's certainly a big improvement over Benedict XVI, his, his predecessor. But blessed are the white people who stood with Martin Luther King. Blessed are the straight people who stand with LGBTQI Americans. You know, blessed are those men who stand with feminism and women's rights. Mm. You know, those are the ones, you know, I think of William Lloyd Garrison, who was a white man in the 1830s and a good friend of Frederick Douglass, the great uh, abolitionist. You know, blessed are men like William yeah. Lloyd Garrison. 
who can see the world as it should be a hundred years before it would ever even begin to get there. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I hear your voice and you're just like, I'm, I'm hearing the St. Francis prayer, you know, it, you know, in my mind right now, in my soul, it's like, you know, you know, I grew up in the church and, and um, there's been just like a lot of, a lot of relationships that have been healed. I just have to actually pause and be like, I learned a lot of wonderful, good things about how to treat people, how to treat myself. And then there was this moment where that just kind of like, there was a cliff where I realized that, um, you know, during the AIDS pandemic became a real conversation that not a lot of people wanted to have that I was around, but when it did, it was not in good context. Some of these things that I learned as a child, these just these like things, these little things that my grandmother would tell me, like, you know, do unto others as you would do to yourself, you know, those timeless things maybe you know, that of how to treat other humans, other spirits mm-hmm. that I've been able to make kind of re- take the good and leave the bad, if that makes any sense. And, and, and how I go about and live my life today. I don't pretend to know like where you at and technically it's not really, honestly, it's not, it's not, it's not fair for me to ask, but like today with, with you, I, my understanding is you have a master's in history and in, in religion as well. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So with your own personal practice today, like what do you, would you mind talking about like what that's like for you today? I think religion is a powerful force and it has a lot of energy. And that is why we have to handle it so gently and carefully because it can be a force for good mm. and it can be a force for ill. In Martin Luther King's case, of course, he always called upon the gospel, called upon the teachings of Jesus, and he was able to transform the world. Uh, you look at some other, Pat Robertson comes to mind, Jerry Falwell comes to mind. Uh, they call upon the the unhappy angels of our nature and they use their religion to sort of proclaim that the people they don't like are the same people God doesn't like. In my own life, I was I truly was born with a religious orientation. Um, and interestingly, my parents were not religious people. They would have believed in God, of course, but they weren't religious. They never took me or my sister to church. The first time I was ever in a church with my parents is when I took them when I was 16 years old. So it was just something, a natural inclination on my part, and I got a lot of good energy from it, Um, and then became a fundamentalist um, Christian for about five years until I was 21. And then slowly I moved into moderate and then liberal form of Christianity. Today, I'm agnostic about a lot of the details. In fact, probably most of the details. But I'm hopeful that there's an energy, a a force, a a power, uh, even a supernatural being that ultimately will wrap up all of our stories in love and in light and in compassion and in grace and in mercy and fix everything in the end. There's no evidence to me that at this point that force or energy is actively fixing things. You know, we're doing it ourselves. That's what humanism is. You, you fix human problems. But I'm hopeful that there is some energy that will ultimately envelop us and I still get very inspired by, you know, listening to an occasional gospel hymn or listening to some of my favorite uh, contemporary Christian singers from the 1980s and early 1990s. So it's still part of me and and my spirit still percolates up 
often and I, I feel awe and I feel inspiration. And I believe that, you know, if we love one another and if we're kind to one another and if we look at 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not get easily angered and so on. Uh, I think these are transformative principles that are applicable to any religious orientation or devotion to any religion or philosophy. I heard someone say the other day that uh, when it comes to life, that they're constantly reminded, like, what would love look like in this situation? I know for myself, like, that I just have to keep it simple. When I start to become a little fundamentalist about how I think somebody else should be living their lives, that I've probably got to look at my plate and see what I'm working with. So, yeah, uh, I appreciate that. Anthony, I'm sorry, I think you were going to say something earlier. Yeah, I. so what I, hearing your your journey, Rodney, through your through your faith. I don't think I've ever been able to see it this way. Is that your faith is a journey? And I hear, you know, so many times, you know, and I'm one of those people who was uh, born and raised, you know, Catholic. And when all of a sudden the Catholic teachings weren't right for me, I uh, sort of, you know ditch the faith so to you know so to speak or ditch the religion and never really found another avenue to you know harness or sort of move those teachings that I've learned growing up and in, in high school and college but never was really able to sort of move those into like a a, a newer space and um it's just it's just interesting I've never quite heard uh, anyone talk about their faith journey that way. And uh, I really appreciate that because there's many times where I miss, you know, some of those, some of the the positive things um, about being in a faith community. But it's, I guess, just like anything else in life, we grow and we change and, uh, you know, how you practice and uh, what that looks like should change and shift as well. So thanks for that. Yeah, we're, we're constantly pruning our lives mm. in terms of who we are friends with or what we like to do or what we're interested in or what has meaning. You know, it's a constant evolutionary process on an individual level as we find those parts that just aren't working anymore and we prune them out. We find those parts parts that are working well and we give them, you know, a little bit of nourishment so they're working even better. But we're all truly, you know, we're, we're all here together in this time and this place on this planet under these circumstances. And of course, 2020 has been uh, unusually difficult for all of us. And we're all hopefully trying our best to do our best and be our best. And we can take from Everyone who's taught us, teachers, religions, schools, culture, entertainment, books, we can take the best from that. Take that which makes us better people and then leave behind that which doesn't. Yeah. Mm. That's a, and, and what you just said there just really echoes. In my experience, as I've gotten a little bit older, is, is that if we can take the best from all of us, because the, 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 the story's not over, right? Like it's, we're bending, it, we're constantly improving. Once I stopped looking at the world as it like, this is just as it is versus like I get to enter into creation and be part of creation that the world is, you know, being pruned towards to be, to be a better place for everyone. I realized that like, if that's going to happen, we need all of us for that. And, uh, you know, and, and I guess where I would, Anthony and I were talking before this, you know, you, you, you and, uh, 
some really wonderful people came together, you know, in the 90s to help form LGBTQ History Month. And, and specifically, I just want to touch on the, on the little history is that my understanding was the month of October was chosen for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one for National Coming Out Day. And the other two was that in 1979, 1987, there had been marches as well. Is, is that correct? That's right. Uh, when I was putting together the proposal, I looked at the calendar. I eliminated months like February, Black History Month, March, Women's History Month. And then I recognized the 1979 March on Washington was in October. The 1987 March was in October on the 11th. The next year, 1988, National Coming Out Day on the 11th. October was in the academic calendar. You know, June is a great month to celebrate what happened at Stonewall and all of the various pride events we have around the country that also include, uh, thankfully, a lot of history. But June is not within the academic calendar. So the, my thought at the time and then the thought of the uh, initial board for the History Month was that we want this to be a secondary, you know, 9 through 12th grade and post-secondary and community event. And if it's going to be part of the school system. It has to be within the academic calendar. So all of those bits and pieces were part of the reason I felt it seemed right to pick October as, as the occasion for the month. So after the proposal was approved or was well-received by other folks, what what was the first step in making LGBTQ History Month for that first October in 1994? Right. The endorsements were the foundation. National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, GLAD, GLSEN, some organizations that aren't still here, uh, endorsements by uh, historians and well-known people in the community. That was the foundation. Uh, then we put together a little packet $5 packet. We'd send it out in the mail. It included some thoughts on History Month, why it's important, historical figures, where you can get more resources, a couple of books that would be uh, helpful, like Becoming Visible, which was uh, a reader in gay and lesbian history by Kevin Jennings, who I'd recruited onto our board. So that would go out to people. But the idea was that it would be a very decentralized occasion that eventually people would just remember, oh, October is LGBT History Month, and and colleges and universities would would pick up on that and begin to do pro begin to do programming around it, and and they do. I, I in October, I often Google LGBTQ History Month because I want to see what's going on in colleges and universities. I was on the Penn State website yesterday, and they've got about 40 events happening at their primary campus and their satellite campuses. And, you know, that's extraordinary. And then also I saw yesterday in Lee County, Florida, Fort Myers area, uh, there was uh, some people in the community who had proposed that the school board issue a proclamation for LGBTQ History Month, mm -hmm. and the board refused to do so. So mm -hmm. it's still something that's not having the impact we would like everywhere because some school districts, and we have a very decentralized system of education in this country where local school boards have the primary decision-making capacity. And if they're not interested, you know, it's very difficult to get anything in that school. But that first year also, uh, Oregon and Massachusetts governors issued a proclamation for October 1994. Uh, we've never had a a federal proclamation. If the election 
on November 3 goes the way I'm hoping it goes. Maybe next October we could get the first official federal proclamation for uh, History Month. We, uh, I know with the state of Illinois where we're at currently, last year Governor Pritzker uh, signed in the LGBT inclusive curriculum bill that took effect uh, that's this year now. With uh, Illinois being the fourth state, I believe, second in California, Colorado, New Jersey to implement the law that Oregon had passed uh, s- similar as well too. And so I think sometimes it's like, to just for, for me, it's like to understand that history is still, how this is building on this ripple that, that was started in 94 is still reverberating here today. And also, Anthony, you, you had a little, we were talking about also like internationally as well too. Sure. I, I mean, w- what we could see and uh, with the information available, it looks like uh, countries like Australia, Hungary, Greenland, Brazil, Canada, and in the UK, they're all, they all celebrate LGBTQ mm-hmm. history. So it's a, uh, there has to be, it's got to be a good thing for you to be able to see that, you know, this one idea, this this idea that you had, it's taken a global effect. Yeah, it's it's deeply meaningful, of course. It, it It's very moving. And most of those places do choose October. But here's a curious story. In the United Kingdom, uh, October was already celebrated as Black History Month. Mm. So when LGBTQ History Month, the idea went to the United Kingdom, Sue Sanders uh, was the person who implemented, she works for Schools Out UK, and she implemented uh, LGBTQ History Month there. And interestingly, next week, she and I are going, we've decided we're going to have a YouTube conversation where we each talk about uh, why we did what we did. Mm. But she started it there in 2005, uh, February. So 11 years after it started here, it moved to the UK. And and it is, it's very meaningful. It's very refreshing. It's humbling. It, it makes me feel good. It, it makes me believe that, you know, I've made a, a wee little mark that, that might outlive me. I, I would say it's a, a pretty big mark that is going to continue for many years to come. I, I hope that it does. I definitely do because I do think it's so important that young people get a a full panorama of the history of, of the human race, the human family, of the um, American story, and of the various groups that you know inhabit this planet with us. So I, I, I hope that it grows and grows and more colleges and universities and secondary schools do more programming around October. Yeah, I think I, I you know, I think with the generation coming up now that's uh, in school, it seems like they're way more receptive uh, than past generations to uh, people who are different from them. It almost it almost is something where it, it looks like it doesn't even phase them that uh, someone is, you know, within the LGBTQI uh, community or someone is a uh, different skin color, different, you know, practices different religion. So I, I definitely see, you know, I could see in the future that it being very well received. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's so refreshing, truly, what the young people are doing everywhere. Yep. With, with the work you've done has caused visibility. It's caused... Uh, uh, it's created a space for for people to have those conversations in the homes. It's not just from you know that that one show on PBS and and you know we all build on each other. You know I I believe that this is just my personal belief. I believe that there is a, a direct correlation with 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 something being familiar and 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 known uh, versus fear. Couldn't think of any better way to you know create visibility and to 
have a safe space for these conversations than to take place earlier in education, you know, in, you know, in, in seventh or eighth grade when they were learning about, you know, the history of, of our country. I'm so grateful now that there is more women's history, that there's African-American history. You know, now to this day, we're learning more about indigenous people history, that we're all having a space at the table. And, and I think that we're so much richer and better for it when we all get to come together and celebrate one another um, that way. And I just really get excited. And I, get, I have so much gratitude uh, for people like yourself. I, I know we've, you've been very humble and uh, we've been giving you a couple of compliments, but we do sincerely appreciate everything you've done um, and continue to do. You've written still, you've, you've written um, a, a book, you've written numerous articles for the Huff Post that have been really engaging that, uh, that I really enjoyed seeing. We're going to be sure um, on, on, our, on, our, on your profile page to make sure we point to all that literature and resources so everyone else can benefit from some of the things we've benefited from getting to know you better, Rodney. Mm-hmm. Anthony, I feel like uh, I've, I've talked a little bit here. I'm going to give you a little space. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, Rodney, just echoing what Jeff said, it's I can't uh, thank you uh, enough for having the courage or the drive or the determination to do what you did. Being, uh, you know, uh, uh, in school myself, you know, back in the '90s, and not n- knowing there was something different about me, but not knowing what it was, and being able to to look back and see and and understand those people who were not afraid to stand up and be who they were and uh, create that visibility in the world is helped lead us to where we are today. To help lead us to that this generation not really caring about our differences. So mm-hmm. for all of us, just thank you for uh, the work that you've done. It's really, really appreciated. Thank you both. Uh, very kind. I've, I've enjoyed the conversation uh, very much. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these things with you. I, I know you'll put the link up for the documentary short Taboo Teaching, but mm-hmm. anybody can just Google Taboo Teaching in my name and they can find it for free on YouTube. And it covers a lot of those events from 1994 and 95. So that's out there for them. But I appreciate very much uh, the chance to speak with you and to speak with your audience. Uh, this has been a, a privilege and a wonderful energizing conversation for me. So thank you both. Oh, thank you so much, Rodney. We really appreciate it. Rodney has contributed to various sources, including the Huffington Post and The Advocate, discussing the importance of LGBTQI plus history. You can also see various television interviews Rodney has done discussing his experience in coming out to his students. He's also written a book, Killing God, Christian Fundamentalism and the Rise of Atheism. All of these articles and video links are available on our website under Rodney's Talk Out Loud profile page, along with his book, which is available in our bookstore. Jeff and I recommend that you take some time to read through his work, and you'll see how important understanding LGBTQI plus history truly is. We said it already, but it's worth saying again. Rodney, thank you for having the courage to talk out loud as you've helped pave the way for so many others. And thank you for being with us for the 26th anniversary of LGBT History Month. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk Out Loud. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate us, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on social media at Talk Out Loud Live. 
If you or someone you know has an inspirational story and a member of the LGBTQIA community, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. You can also get your official Talk Out Loud gear in our online store. Thanks again for listening, and remember to be true, be you, and to talk out loud. <laughs>